Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. According to the preliminary report issued in July from the President's Commission, on combating drug addiction and the opioid crisis, approximately 142 Americans die every day from the opioid epidemic, the report notes. America is enduring a death toll that's equal to September 11th every three weeks. The final report isn't due out until this fall. Meanwhile, many across the country who have been profoundly impacted by the crisis are taking action to make a difference. Joining me today is Gary Mandel. Gary founded Shatterproof, after losing his son, Brian, who took his own life after struggling with opioid dependence for a number of years. Gary is the founder of HEI Hotels and Resorts, a multi-billion dollar company that oversees a portfolio of 70 hotels. And today, as CEO of Shatterproof, he dedicates his time to help spare other families from the profound loss his family felt. So Gary, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Let's dig right into this. Can we can we start off by having you share Brian's story with us? Sure. Um, you know, Brian grew up like a typical child, and as a teenager, he did many of the things that teenagers do, uh, including trying pot. And uh, tragically for him, that led to becoming addicted to pot and harder and harder drugs. And it led to him going to eight different treatment programs over eight years. And ultimately, as, as hard as he tried, uh, he passed away on October 20th, 2011. And even more tragic, it wasn't just addiction that took Brian's life. Uh, it was the feeling of, of shame that he had, feeling like an outcast, which I believe caused him to wake up that morning and research suicide notes and take his own life. Boy, um, that's that's just devastating. So how were you able to move on and get started with Shatterproof? You know, after Brian passed away, um, I really focused on the serenity prayer. And I kept reading the first sentence over and over again, you know, really searching to find the serenity to accept what I couldn't change, that Brian would not be coming home. And... You know, after, and, and beyond that, in the weeks and months, as the weeks and months went on, 
I began reading the second sentence, you know, the courage to change the things we can. And with that, I began to think about ways that we could, that I and others could help other people and spare other families from what we had gone through. And through that, um, it really struck me how big this disease was, how many families it was shattering all across our country. And it really also hit me hard that there was a body of knowledge that had been created by research over the last 20 years that could significantly reduce the number of families that were struck by this. And, but it wasn't being implemented. And I also saw that for every major disease in this country, there was one well-funded national organization that, um, that was funding private research, uh, advocating for changes in policies, reducing shame and stigma, and giving information and support to families. And no such organization existed for addiction. So knowing that, I decided to leave my career in business and dedicate the rest of my life to creating an organization for addiction and, um, and engaging others in our cause because at the end of the day it's not about what I can do it's about how we mobilize hundreds of thousands of people around this country to build an organization to do those four things and that's what led to the formation of Shatterproof and so you founded Shatterproof in what year? Um, 2012 and we launched we officially launched to the public in, two, in the fall of 2013 and since that time, one of the things that you've done to raise awareness, as well as funds, is these repelling events. That's a dramatic event. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, sure. As I studied the other health charities, American Cancer Society, American Heart Association, Autism Speaks, Susan Komen, MS Society, when I saw that, one of the ways that, was, that they really powerfully engage the public in their cause to reduce shame and stigma and provide funding for what they were doing was events. The biggest event being 5Ks around the country. And however, as we launched, I was looking for, I saw an event that would also, in addition to engaging people in our cause and raising funding for our cause, I was looking for an event that would as a new organization, not, um, not need thousands of people per event to make them successful. And they would also bring in the media to attract attention to what we were doing and to our cause. And through that, I came up with the idea of hosting events around the country where people repel off the buildings. And again, no different in a format from a 5K where families and companies are forming teams to do the event and raising funds, but the difference was it was repelling off a building versus a walk, and it brought the local affiliates from all the major networks to cover what we were doing, um, show news stories about it, and really bring attention to this issue that is such an issue around the country. So Now this year, going into our fourth year, we, we're now launching 5Ks around the country to supplement what we're doing with the repelling events. We're going to keep the repelling events going, but now we're also launching a series of 5Ks around the country, which now we're ready for as an organization to be able to attract thousands of people per event and, and engage that many more people. Okay. So, we, we just had our first one in Kansas City, and now we're holding them in 
uh, Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C., and Atlanta over the next couple months. Wow. That's terrific. Uh, the repelling events, how many do you have right now across the country? We're holding six this year across the country. Six. Uh-huh. That is tremendous. So it kind of brings the community together, and you get a lot of press out of it, and so a lot of attention, which really kind of helps with this cause in a big way, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's just, it's, it really, to me, showed the power. I experienced firsthand the power of bringing people together because there's so many people with this disease that live in isolation and stigmatized. I can't tell you how many people that I've met at these repelling events who are just hugging each other and just hugging me, hugging other people from Shatterproof, just thrilled that we're hosting this event where it's a safe place for them to come to feel supported and not feel isolated. In one of the articles where you were interviewed, you said um, you talked about merging science with a business approach to address the opioid epidemic. Now, I think you hit on it a little bit earlier, but let's dig deeper into that. Could you share with us your philosophy on that? Sure. Um, as, a, as, a, as someone who has run businesses for my entire career, to now come into this field, what, I see, what I've experienced is a lot of really, truly wonderful people whose hearts are in the right places, who um, are healthcare workers, researchers, policymakers, and are very good at what they do specifically in that function. But I see an opportunity to bring in skill sets that I've honed in business to implement things on a more efficient basis. And take, for example, and I can give you dozens, take treatment. In this country, treatment for addiction, take treatment in in this country, you have extremely well-meaning and uh, extremely well-meaning professional and very good researchers who are developing uh, hypotheses of processes that providers can do, doctors can do, treatment programs can do that will improve patient outcomes. And then they uh, perform a research project to determine if patients doing that process, or excuse me, patients receiving that type of care have better outcomes than patients not receiving that type of care. And if it works, they publish an article. It's, it's, it's published in a peer-reviewed medical journal. And the issue then is it sits there and not really implemented, even though it's, a, it's been proven to improve outcomes. And you have 13,000 providers or treatment programs really not implementing the research that's been proven to work. So I look at that as a businessman, and to me it's, it's a fairly simple solution. Let's inventory all the evidence-based processes that doctors or treatment programs should be following to improve patient outcomes. Let's narrow the list to the ones that improve outcomes the most and build the infrastructure to measure which providers are following which of these processes. And if we can do so, and we can then, once we know who's doing what, and we can turn that information over to the payers, the insurance companies that are paying for treatment, then it's it's a very logical extension that that those payers will pay more for the the processes that improve patient outcomes the most 
and not pay for or pay substantially less for the outcome or the processes that have poorer outcomes. It's just common, it's just to me, basic 101 business. And so, you know, in business, there's a common phrase that's pretty basic what doesn't get measured doesn't get done. And right now, there is no infrastructure in place to measure who's doing what. So, we, I have spent the last nine months um, putting together the right coalition of organizations of, of the top payers in the country that, that, that pay for the vast majority of treatment in the United States or influence the vast majority of influence how, the, how treatment is paid for in this country. And we're heading toward our kickoff meeting in about four weeks in Washington, D.C., a full-day meeting to frame out a process over a period of months to put this in place. That's just one example. So you also have seven recommendations for the President's Commission. Can you walk us through those? Sure. Um, you know, number one, let's focus, you know, let me back up. Recommendations for the President's Commission. Focusing to start out on the three million people in this country who are addicted to opioids, number one, quality of treatment. We just spoke about that. But the government should be partnering with us to speed along this coalition that I've put together. That's number one. Number two, access to treatment. Access to treatment, there's three gaps in this country why only two in ten people who have an opiate use disorder are getting treatment. There, there's a, there's a, a shortage of doctors who are uh, certified and, and willing to prescribe buprenorphine. A quick solution to that is to increase reimbursement rates for doctors who prescribe buprenorphine so more will seek the certification and more who have the certification um, will use it. And that takes care of the doctors prescribing buprenorphine. As far as the behavioral therapists, the professionals who can deliver the behavioral therapies that are recommended in the Surgeon General's report that have great outcomes. Uh, there's just simply not enough therapists in the country who are trained to do so. And unlike an eight-hour certification for doctors to prescribe buprenorphine, this is going to require a, a, work, a, mo a workforce mobilization, if you will. It's going to take tens of millions of dollars to train enough therapists around the country to deliver these behavioral therapies. And in relation to the savings in lives and in health care costs and productivity and in criminal justice, the return on investment that would necessary to do so is, is, that you would achieve for doing so, or be way above what is necessary to spend that money. And um, and the third is, is the third gap is financing. A lot of a lot of insurance plans in the country have prior authorizations pr in place before a patient can get one of the three medications, which is methadone, buprenorphine, or naltrexone, um, and those prior authorization should be eliminated. And in addition to that, um, there are some people that don't have insurance. And for those people, the government should jump in over the next two to four years while this epidemic is raging, raging excuse me, and provide funding for them to get treatment. Because at the end of the day, this epidemic, if there is complete consensus that this epidemic was caused by our government agencies not providing the proper overs oversight for the prescribing of opioids, 
that were far more dangerous than anyone knew of. And because of that lack of, lack of oversight, we have 3 million people addicted today. We owe it to them to make sure they get the right treatment. So we need to solve the gaps for providers to prescribe, uh, healthcare professionals to administer the behavioral therapies, and, and funding for those who don't have the insurance to cover treatment. So that covers the treatment quality and the treatment access. The next piece related to, the, to those 3 million people addicted is to rescue those who have relapsed and, have suffer, and are suffering an overdose. Uh, I suspect many, most people in this country are starting to hear about now about naloxone or Narcan, which can instantly reverse an overdose. But it's not near as accessible as it should be. More policemen are starting to carry it, but not all. And it should be much more available than just policemen having it. It should be as available as fire extinguishers. Wherever there's a fire extinguisher, there should be a naloxone kit. Because people are overdosing in, in, in all different locations. And many times, policemen don't get there in time. And then the last thing related to the 3 million people who are already addicted, we need to end once and for all the stigma of addiction. You know, I, I remember very clearly the last time my son came home. And the last night, before he got up the next morning and flew back out west, we were sitting on the back porch talking. He looked at me and he said, Dad, someday people will realize I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person with a bad disease. And I am trying my absolute hardest. Our society needs to realize that. That needs to end. There are not bad, these are not bad people doing bad things. Those with this disease, whether it's addicted to opioids or any substance, they have, a, they have a chronic disease and need to be treated with protocols that are grounded in science and with love and empathy, just like anyone with any other disease. And then the last point that I'll make, that I've made to the, to the uh, President's Commission, is to prevent me, our, many of our loved ones from ever becoming addicted. We need to get prescribing habits of doctors changed much more rapidly than the current pace. The CDC issued guidelines, the CDC guideline for prescribing opioids for chronic pain was issued a year ago last March. But we know for a fact that many doctors in the country are not following them. And that's just unacceptable. And back to the point I made earlier about a business approach to solving a health issue in the business world, there's not a company in America, whether you're talking the largest companies like GE to a smaller company of, of five hardware stores that would issue a, an initiative without a goal attached to it and ways to measure and track and hold people accountable toward that goal. Well, the CDC issued a wonderful initiative a year ago last March, a set of 12 recommendations for doctors there's no goal, so we don't know how to measure how we're doing toward that goal, because there's no goal to, to measure against, and there's no tracking system to hold people accountable and understand who's doing well and who's not. And I have also recommended that to the, to the President's Commission. Let's talk for just a minute here, Gary, about drug monitoring programs. You make some sure. points about the fact that you know 
most states now have those in place, so the doctors are supposed to report to them, but there's inconsistency from state to state in terms of how that is overseen. And also, there's a lot of data that we could mine there, it seems, to really learn about this thing and learn what's really happening out there. So can you comment on the reporting overall and and your thoughts in terms of how quickly it should be turned around and the requirements that should be placed on that? And also, give us your thoughts on what data might be, what we might be able to learn from all of the data if we got access to it. Sure. I'm a strong component of prescription drug monitoring programs. But again, I'm going to refer back to this is not my personal opinion. This is rooted in science. This is rooted in evidence. And our National Institutes of Health, CDC, on and on, every governmental agency within the health area recommends universal use of prescription drug monitoring programs. So I am just repeating what I've learned. So why, why am I repeating what I learned and, and why are they so strongly recommended? Prescription drug monitoring programs are, are state databases of what has been dispensed by pharmacies in each state. With that information, um, again, every state has one except for the state of Missouri, but Missouri is now getting one. So if a doctor checks the database before prescribing, a Schedule 2, 3, or 4 controlled substance, which is opioids, benzodiazepines, and sedatives, that, or excuse me, and stimulants, then that doctor will have that much more information when making a decision what to prescribe. It doesn't limit the, the doctor's ability one iota as far as his control over that decision, but it gives him more information before making his or her more information before they make that decision. And it's, it's, the data is clear that in states where doctors are not required to check it before they prescribe, they only check it less than one in four times. So to me, I'm not about legislating health care. I'm about saving lives. And if doctors were using it four out of five times or more, then I would say we don't have a big issue. But when doctors are only checking it one out of, less than one out of four times, I would say if they're not going to do it on their own, we need to legislate to ensure that they're using it. Because if doctors use it, they'll find out three things. They'll find out a patient who comes in who says they have a back pain and needs Vicodin or Percocet or Oxycontin. The doctor can instantly tell if he checks if that patient is doctor shopping. And if they are, they're not going to prescribe more opioids opioids, they're going to get to the root of the problem. Number two, they'll see if that patient is already taking Xanax for, the right, for possibly the right reasons. You may have a patient who's someone's daughter in high school on a soccer team who is, gets hurt playing soccer, and the daughter in high school on a soccer team who's appropriately taking Xanax because she has social anxiety, and she has a psychiatrist giving, prescribing her Xanax on a quarterly basis, perfectly above board and correct. And then she gets hurt playing soccer. She goes into the health center, and they give her Vicodin without checking and realizing she's already on Xanax. But the two together could be lethal. Four times the chance of overdose when you put the two together. 30% of those who died of an opiate overdose last year also had a benzodiazepine in their bloodstream. 
recommended by the CDC, recommendation number, number 11 out of 12, never prescribed together an opioid and a benzodiazepine such as Xanax. And if the doctor doesn't check, how does he or she know? And third, they'll learn more about the patient. What other drugs are they taking? So for a doctor not to check, in my view, not in my view, in, 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 in the science view, it's negligent. Amazing that there's not more compliance there. It's shocking. It is shocking. Yeah. It, is, it is tragic. Yeah. Gary, recently, President Trump uh, declared the opioid epidemic a national emergency. What would you hope comes out of that? Uh, two things. Um, number one, the ability to move quicker on some things. And number two, the attention that this epidemic needs. Could you imagine if, if a plane was dropping out of the sky every day with 150 people aboard? Within two or three days, our air control system would be shut down until we fixed it. This is happening every day, all year long, 365 days this year. And next year, it won't be 150 people. It'll be 180 people every day. So, call it, so, so defining this as a national emergency does two things. And it brings attention to this cause so we can solve things quicker. It mobilizes people faster. And it frees up funding levels that might not be available otherwise. And it allows federal agencies to supersede things that would normally have to go through Congress during an that they wouldn't have to in an emergency. Gary, I'll ask you, what final thoughts do you have for our listeners on the opioid epidemic and how you would like to see our national response evolve? Well, I would like to see uh, a couple points. Number one, I'd like to see our national response um, evolve to the speed and urgency that the number of people dying every day deserves, which, which has not happened. The Trump administration, since it has been in office, has done nothing to this issue as of, as, as, as of today. And the Obama administration, um, to, to be fair, on the other side, did not um, raise this to the urgent level that it needed to. So our federal government needs to, needs to respond in a way that is that is in correspondence to the number of lives being lost every day. And secondly, I would say to your audience that one of the, the foundations of making all this happen is ending for once and for all the unjust stigma that's associated with people who are afflicted with this disease and their families. And I would encourage people to come to our website, shadowproof.org, and learn about it. Um, if you're living in one of the cities where we have our 5Ks, um, we'd love to have people come out and join us to, to feel a part of what we're doing. Um, we're, we're, we have a lot of information there to educate people. And there's nothing like being with other people in your same situation to feel a sense of comfort. And let's go through those 5K cities once again, Gary. Sure. Kansas City, we just finished a few months ago. But coming up in the months of October and early November is uh, Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C., and Atlanta. And the information's on the front page of our, homes, of our homepage on our website. Shatterproof.org. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Gary, I want to thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. We've been joined today by CEO of Shatterproof, that is Gary Mandel, who dedicates his time and has dedicated the rest of his life 
to spare families from the profound loss his family has felt. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.